Chapter 27 of Lover or Friend by Rosa Carey What Michael thought of it. Not to be solitary, one must possess entirely to oneself a human creature and belong exclusively to her or him. Guizot How then is one to recover courage enough for action? By extracting a rich experience out of our losses and lessons. Amiel Captain Burnett had finished his troublesome piece of business and was thinking of his return home. His friend was, metaphorically speaking, on his feet again, and Michael was now free to leave London. He had waited, however, for another day or two on Kester's account. The friendly doctor who had undertaken to look into his case had already done wonders. Kester was making rapid progress under his care, and his bright looks and evident enjoyment of his town life reconciled Michael to their long, protracted stay. We must certainly go back to Rutherford next week, he observed one morning as they sat at breakfast together. Kester had some appointment with Fred Summers, called him out early, and Captain Burnett good-naturedly left his letters unread, that he might pour out the coffee and attend to his wants. They will keep, and I have nothing to do this morning, he remarked carelessly, as he took them up and laid them down again. After all, he would not be sorry to read them along. There was an Indian letter, and one from Audrey, and several notes that were evidently invitations. When Kester had left him, he sat down in an easy chair by the window. There was a little table beside him, with a red jar full of brown leaves and chrysanthemums. He picked out one and played with it for a moment, and then Booty jumped up uninvited and curled himself up on his knee. He read the invitations first, and then threw them aside. I shall be at Rutherford, he thought, and then he opened his Indian letter. It was from a fellow officer and contained an amusing account of a visit he had lately paid to Calcutta. Just at the end it said, By the by, somebody told me the other day that your uncle, Mr. Carlyle, was ill. He has got a nasty attack, and the doctors are shaking their heads over him. The fellow who told me, it was Doniston, mentioned that you are likely to take a lively interest in the news. Is that true, old man, or has Mr. Carlyle any nearer relative than yourself? From what I hear, he is a sort of nabob in these parts. Captain Burnett put down this letter and looked dreamily out of the window. Was it really so, he wondered. Major Glynyard was not the sort of fellow to mention a mere report. His uncle was by no means an old man, and once or twice a rumour of his intended marriage had reached his ears, but had never been verified. If it were true that his uncle were in a bad way, that he should not recover, then indeed there was a possibility. And here, in spite of himself, Michael fell into a daydream. If he were rich, if he had sufficient to offer a comfortable home and some of the luxuries of life to the woman he wished to make his wife, would it be right for him to speak? For years his poverty and ill health had kept him silent. He had made no sign. He had been her faithful friend and cousin. That was all. But now, if the pressure of narrow means were removed, if, after all, he were his uncle's heir, as he verily believed himself to be, might he not venture to plead his cause at last? His health was better, and his doctor had often told him, half seriously and half in joke, that all he needed was a good wife to take care of him. I shall never be as strong as other men, he said to himself. Some women might object to me on that score, but she is not that sort. She loves to take care of people, to feel herself necessary to them. And here a smile came to his lips. I have never spoken to her, never dropped a hint of my feelings, but somehow I do not think she would be surprised if I ever told them. We have been so much to each other. I think I should teach her to love me in time. At least, I would try.
my sweet. And here there was a sudden gleam and fire in his eyes. And then he took up Audrey's letter and began to read it. But when he had finished the first sentence, a curious, dull feeling came over him, and he found that he could not understand what he was reading. He must go over the passage again. But as he reread it, the same numbness and impossibility of comprehension came over him, and yet the words were very clearly written. Shall you be very much surprised, my dear Michael, to hear some news I have to tell you? I am engaged to Mr. Blake. I'll tell you all about it presently, just as though you were my father confessor. I will not hide one little thing from you. But I was never one to beat about the bush, and I hope my abruptness here has not made you jump. But, oh, Michael, dear, I am so happy, etc. He read the sentence half a dozen times, until something of its meaning had taken hold of his dense brain. And then he read the letter straight through, to the very end, slowly, and often pausing after a sentence that seemed to him a little involved. And as he read, there was a pinched grey look upon his face, as though some sudden illness had seized him, but he was not conscious of any active pain, though the whole plan and purpose of his life lay crushed in the dust before him, like the chrysanthemum that Booty was tearing petal by petal, until his master's coat-sleeve was covered with golden-brown shreds. On the contrary, as he sat there, holding the letter between his limp hands, his mind wandered off to a story he had once read. Was it the wreck of the Royal George, he wondered? The name of the vessel had escaped him, but he knew the story was a true one. It had really happened. He had read how the vessel was doomed. She was a troopship, and there were hundreds of brave English soldiers on board, and when they knew there was no hope, the officers drew up their men on the deck, just as though they were on parade, and the gallant fellows stood there in rank and file as they went down to their watery grave. And not a man of them flinched. You may depend on that, he said half aloud, for they were Englishmen, and Englishmen know how to die. And it seemed to him that he was still ruminating over this old story that had happened so many, many years ago, when Kester returned, and he must needs tell him the story again, and he told it very well, too. And not a man of them flinched, he repeated, rising a little feebly from his chair, for they were Englishmen, and Englishmen know how to die. Why are you staring at me, boy? It is a good story, is it not? Very good indeed, but I was only afraid you were not quite well, Captain Burnett. You look so queer somehow, and your hand is shaking. I have sat too long. I think I must walk off my stiffness. Don't wait lunch for me, Kester. I may go to the club. And then he took down his hat and went out in the streets, with Booty ambling along at his heels. But he did not go far. He strolled into the park and sat down on a bench. The air refreshed him, and the miserable, numb feelings left him, and he had power to think. But there were deep lines in his face as he sat there, and a great sadness in his eyes. And just before he rose to go home, a few words escaped him. Oh, my darling, what a mistake! When you belong to me, will you ever find it out for yourself? Will you ever recognize that it is a mistake? And then he set his teeth hard, like a man who knows his strength and refuses to be beaten. And the next morning, as they sat at breakfast, Michael looked up from his newspaper and asked Castor if he'd heard the Rutherford news. Perhaps your mother or Molly has written too, he observed, as he carelessly scanned the columns. Castor looked up a little anxiously. No one has told me anything, he said rather nervously. I hope it is not bad news. Most people would call it good news. Your brother and Miss Ross are engaged. Well, as Castor jumped from his seat, 
flushing scarlet. Aren't you delighted? I think you ought to write a pretty note to Miss Ross to go with my letter. Have you written to her? Will you give her a message from me? I would rather write to Cyril. I don't take it in, somehow. You are quite sure it is true, Captain Bennett. Of course I am glad that Cyril should be happy, but I always thought... And here Kester stammered and got confused. But Michael did not help him. He took up his paper again and left him to finish his breakfast in silence. And after that he remarked that he was going down to his club. Kester curled himself up on the window seat as soon as he was left alone and fell into a brown study. Somehow he could not make it out at all. He was sharp-witted by nature, and years of suffering and forced inaction had made him more thoughtful than most boys of his age. He long ago grasped the idea that his idolised hero was not happy, and during their stay in Scotland some dim surmise of the truth had occurred to him. Dear old Cyril, he observed half aloud, I'm awfully glad for his sake, but it always seemed to me as though Miss Ross were cut above us, if only I was sure that he was glad too. And here a troubled look crossed the boy's face as he was thinking of the story Captain Bennett had told him yesterday, and of the strange dazed look in Michael's eyes. And not a man of them flinched, but they were Englishmen, and Englishmen knew how to die. Ah, oh, and to live too, thought Castor as he roused himself at last and sat down to his Greek. When Audrey heard that Michael was really coming home, she felt as though she had nothing more to wish. She had read his letter at least a dozen times, its brotherly tenderness and anxiety for her welfare, and touched her to the heart. I am very grateful for your confidence, he wrote, after a few earnest wishes for her happiness. I would like, if it were possible, to keep my old place as mentor. We have always been such friends, dear, such true and trusty comrades, and I do not think that Mr. Blake will object to my cousinly surveillance. I could not afford to lose you out of my life, Audrey, so let me subscribe myself, now and forever, your faithful friend and brother, Michael. Audrey sighed gently as he put down the letter. It touched, but it did not completely satisfy her. Michael had not said he was glad to hear of her engagement. It was truthful almost to a fault. The conventional falsehoods that other men uttered were never on his lips. If he could not approve, he would take refuge in silence. Silence never damages a man's character, he was fond of saying, but many people found this oppressive. Audrey had secretly longed for some such word of approval. If Michael had only told her that he applauded her courage in marrying a poor man, if he had praised her unworldliness, she would have been utterly content. But the letter that Michael had written, with a breaking heart, held no such comfort for her. He had accepted her decision without a word, and though his message of congratulations to Cyril was all that could be wished, there was no further allusion to him. Michael thinks I have been rash, she said to herself a little sorrowfully. I suppose he, too, considers that Cyril is rather too young. If Michael were only on our side, I should not care what the rest of the world thinks. And then she folded up the letter. But on the day Michael was expected, her face was so radiant that Cyril pretended to be jealous. You're very fond of your cousin, he observed, as he followed her to the window, where she was watching the clouds a little anxiously. Audrey heard him rather absently. She was thinking that the dampness might bring on Michael's neuralgia, and that if he had only named his train, the carriage might have been sent for him. Indeed, she would have driven out herself to meet him and Kester. Oh, yes, she rejoined. I have missed him terribly all this time. Nothing is right without Michael. And as Cyril looked a little surprised at this, she added quickly, He is like my own brother, Cyril, so it is perfectly natural, you see. Ever since his illness he has been one of us, 
and as Cyril professed himself satisfied with this explanation, there was nothing more said, and Audrey went up to put the finishing touches to Michael's rooms, and to arrange the chrysanthemums and coloured leaves in the big Indian jars. If she had only known how Michael would shudder at the sight of these chrysanthemums. He had taken a dislike to the flowers ever since Booty had covered his coat sleeve with golden-brown petals. After all, Michael came before he was expected. Audrey was sitting chatting to her mother in the twilight when they heard the hall door open and close, and the next moment they saw Michael standing on the threshold looking at them. "'My dear Michael!' exclaimed Mrs. Ross, but Audrey had already crossed the room. Both their hands were in Michael's, and he was looking at her with his old kind smile, though he did not say a word, but Audrey didn't seem to notice his silence. "'Have you walked from the great cottage? We did not hear any wheels. Why did you not let us know your train, and I would have driven in to meet you? Mother, I am going to ring for the lamp and tea. Michael will be tired.' And Audrey did as she said, and then picked up booty and lavished all sorts of caresses on the little animal while she listened to the quiet explanations that Michael was giving to Mrs. Ross. "'You are looking very well, Audrey,' he said at last. "'You have not lost your moorland colour yet.' And though he said this in his usual tone, he thought that never in his life had he seen her look so sweet. "'I wish I could return the compliment,' was her answer. "'You are looking thin and pale, Michael. You have been giving us such a good account of yourself, but London never suits you.' "'I think it suits me better than it did,' he returned quietly but he could not quite meet her affectionate look. I shall have to run up there pretty frequently now. One must look up one's friends more. Out of sight is out of mind in many cases. Audrey gave an incredulous smile. She thought Michael would not act up to this resolution, but he fully meant what he said. Woodcott, dearly as he loved it, would never be his home now. Of course he would do things by degrees. His brief absences should grow longer and more frequent until they had become used to them and perhaps in time he might break with his old life altogether. But he put away these thoughts, and talked to them in his usual easy fashion, asking questions about Geraldine and her husband, and presently Dr. Ross came in, and monopolized him entirely. Audrey felt as though she had not had a word with him when she went upstairs to dress for dinner. True, he had asked after Cyril, and inquired if he were coming in that evening, but on Audrey's replying in the negative, he had made no observation. Father is in the room. He will never let Michael talk to anyone else, she said to herself, rather discontentedly. If I could only get him alone. She had her wish presently, for on her return to the drawing room, she found him lying back in an easy chair looking at the fire. He was evidently thinking intently, for he did not hear her entrance until she was close beside him, but at the touch of her hand on his shoulder, he started violently. Penny for your thoughts, Michael she said gaily as he jumped up and stood beside her on the rug. "'They are too valuable to be saleable,' he returned lightly. "'Suppose you let me hear yours instead.' "'You shall have them, and welcome. Oh, Michael, how delicious it is to be talking to you again. Letters are so stupid and unsatisfactory.' "'Do you mean my letters in particular?' "'Oh, no, they were as nice as possible, but all the same they did not quite satisfy me. Do you know?' And here her tone was a little wistful. "'You have not told me that you are glad about my engagement.' You said so many nice things, but somehow I was longing for just one word of approval from my old mentor. An uneasy flush crossed Michael's face, but the firelight was flickering just then, and Audrey could not see him distinctly. For one moment he was silent, then he put her gently in a seat and placed himself beside her. It would be easier to talk to her so, and perhaps he was conscious of some sudden weakness. How cold your hands are, 
she observed anxiously. If you will break the big coal, the fire will burn more brightly. And as he obeyed her, she continued. Ah, now we can see each other. I do dislike a flickering, uncertain light. Now will you tell me frankly if you are glad or sorry when you got my letter? He was more prepared now, and his voice was quite steady as he answered her. Mentor has no objection to be catechized, but he wishes to put one question first. Are you quite content and happy, Audrey? Indeed I am, turning to him, one of the brightest faces he had ever seen. Then, my dear, I am satisfied too. Oh, but that will not do. You must tell me your own private opinion. I know you like Cyril. You have always spoken well of him. But are you sure that in your heart you thoroughly approve my choice? She was pressing him close, but he did not flinch. He only turned to her rather gravely. My dear Audrey, there are limits even to mentors' privileges. When two people make up their minds to take each other for better, for worse, no third person has a right to give an opinion. I know little of Mr. Blake, but I have already a respect for him. I am perfectly sure that in time we shall be good friends. I hope so. I hope so from my heart, she returned earnestly. You are very guarded, Michael, and though you are too kind to say so, I know you think I have acted rather hastily. Perhaps you would rather I had waited a little longer, but Cyril was so unhappy, and I... Well, I was not quite comfortable myself. It is so much nicer to have it all settled. Yes, I see. And now everything is just perfect. Oh, Michael, you must not go away for a long time. I cannot do without you. I hope you don't expect me to believe that. But it is perfectly true, I assure you. Actually, Cyril pretended to be jealous today, because I could think of nothing but your coming home. He was only teasing me, for of course he understands what we feel for each other. If you were my brother, Michael, I could not want you more. But that is the best of Cyril. He really is so unselfish, almost as unselfish as you. Oh, dear child, returned Michael lazily. Did you ever hear of a certain philosopher named Diogenes? And now he set off one day, lamp in hand, to search through the city for an honest man. Really, your remark makes me inclined to light my own private farthing dip and look for this curious anomaly, an unselfish man. You would not have to go far, she returned innocently. There are two of them in Rutherford at the present moment. But he only shook his head and laughed at this guileless flattery. And at that moment, to his relief, Dr. Ross came into the room. But as he took his place at the dinner table, he had a curious sensation, as though he had been racked, and though he laughed and talked, he had an odd feeling all the time, as though he were not quite sure of his own identity. And all that evening, a few words that Audrey had said haunted him like a refrain. If you were my own brother, Michael, I could not want you more. If you are my own brother, I could not want you more.